Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. I'm going to reach all the way back into my roots because this is the mood that I am in. God is good. Amen. Somebody say amen that God is good. All right. Y'all need to stop and think about for a second what we got going on here. All right. We said, all right, that we've hired somebody who I, was it sheep or pigs? It was pigs. Okay. It always comes back to pigs. But around a pig show, we found the person God has called, that God has called to come into this spot. We've got four young women who are in our confirmation class. I've got a Sunday school that is filled with children downstairs. You all understand that all the things you've been praying for, God has provided, yes? You all get this. All right, and it's a great time to be a young person at St. Mary's. Oh, there you are, Emily. I was looking for you. I wanted to gesture toward, figured you were over there. (laughs) So with all this going on, with everything kind of finally into place, I thought today might be a good day to talk about children and youth. Talk about the future and talk about what the modern world, the world that our children will inherit, what the modern world will require, not just of them, but of the church. Let's dive into this a little bit. And I want to start with the most unlikely spot possible when you are dealing with children, when you are dealing with youth. All right, let's start with the longest chapter of the Bible, shall we? That makes all the sense in the world, right? Is it 139 verses in Psalm 119, I believe? All right, you're welcome. We did not read them all. I was tempted, but we didn't do that. The psalmist puts language to this thing that we are thinking about, about this inquiry, about what the world requires of the church and what it means to be a young person in the church. The psalmist has a similar mindset as they put language to this in this Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem. And what it does is that it takes every letter of the Hebrew alphabet and it writes out for each one of these letters eight lines of verse. And the idea is that it is talking about the completeness, the wholeness from A to Z, so to speak, the wholeness of the law of God, which is exactly what young people want to talk about, right? Law, what to do and what not to do. And some of us, you might be like, oh my gosh, like we got to talk about what God tells me to do and what God tells me not to do. But the psalm opens surprisingly. We didn't read this portion today, but here's how the psalm opens. Happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his decrees, who seek God with their whole heart. Happy, happy. Perhaps it's a surprise that the longest chapter in the Bible that talks about the law of God opens with the word happy and uses it twice. There is something positive and beautiful about the law of God that the psalmist wants to communicate to you and to me. And if, it, and if we need reinforcement for that, when Jesus comes later and Jesus goes up on the mountain to give his sermon on the mount, he opens up by describing what the kingdom of God is, and he opens with a nearly identical word. We translate it as blessed are the poor in spirit, but there's another translation that says happy are the poor in spirit. Happy, blessed are those who walk in the way of God. 
So somewhere between happiness and blessedness is the meaning of this word. And we might say, as believers in the church, the faith in Jesus Christ, we might say, has a light heart and a stout conviction. To follow after Jesus is a light heart. We go joyfully. We know what Christ has done for us. And we go with, this, with the beautiful burden of conviction that we have work to do in the world. When we follow Christ, there is a happiness that is hard to describe. But you've experienced it, right? I experience it in my life. Like there are times when I've said my prayers and then there are times when I have prayed. And the times that I have prayed, my heart is made lighter. There is a happiness to that. There's a happiness when we connect to others, not just on a, how was your day? How are you doing? But here's what's going on in my life. And when we connect on that, there's a happiness that comes. My faith also causes me to experience a sense of purpose and a sense of conviction that each one of us is set aside for a purpose. And that is a burden, but it is a joyful burden. If I can borrow from the zeitgeist, it is a glorious purpose. That's for you, Jules. It's a glorious purpose that we have for ourselves. And all of this is rooted in God's love and God's acceptance of me. Happiness, blessedness, a light heart and a stout conviction. And what Psalm 119 wants us to know is that when my life is aligned with God's ways and what God is doing in the world, I walk in such a way, light heart, stout conviction. And both the ancients and the moderns witness that if we would live a life that is that way, then our way, our walk, our lifestyle is to be in the way, to be in this path, to be in the manner of God, and that our internal disposition matters as well, and it is to be a disposition of complete and total commitment. Happy are those who keep his decrees, who seek God with their whole hearts. That's stanza one. That's letter A. So letter B is what we read in our responsive reading today. The next stanza and the obvious next question for the believer who seeks sort of the happy way of God is, well, how can we do that? How can a young man keep his way pure? The translation we read today. I need you to know that this word pure bugs me. Bugs me because it can go sideways in a hurry. Purity in faith is a tough concept, and I need you to know that the idea of being pure has kind of messed with me from time to time. I'm always wondering, well, how impure can I be before I am impure? Purity is difficult, so I don't like this translation. So I went to another one. It's a Jewish scholar. His name is Robert Alter, and he translates it this way. How shall a lad make his path worthy? That I can get behind. How shall a lad make his path worthy? How shall we walk in a worthy way? How, shall we, how can we live a happy life? It's really more the idea of integrity, of devotion, of wholehearted, pointed in a single direction. Not pure as in perfect, but, but integrity of a way of life. A life with conviction and values and direction. And this is the question. How will we help our young people walk in this kind of way of integrity? Today, St. Mary's makes a commitment to young people to help them with this. So how, St. Mary's, how shall we do this? What will be required of us for these young people to keep to walk a way that is worthy?
because here's what I know as I talk to them. And this particular group I know pretty well. <laughs> That's going to make it interesting. But I know this bunch. This bunch, the last bunch that we confirmed, here's what I know. Our children and our youth want to be happy. They want to know God loves them and has a plan for them. They want to walk with a light heart and a firm conviction. But for all of that, and I'm not talking about our kids, I'm talking about their generation. For all of that, for all our children who want to just walk with a sense of purpose and a sense of lightness, Generation Z is painfully unhappy. Gen Z is the most thoroughly material generation in history. And what I mean by that is that they have access to everything. They are the first to grow up completely in the digital age. I got lucky. I'm the Oregon Trail generation. I, I miss, a good bit of that I missed. I, cell phones didn't show up in my house until college. So I remember a time that I wasn't on instant messenger or social media all the time. But this generation is swamped in it. And a study after study is showing, for all of this access, they're so painfully unhappy. And ladies, I'm not talking about you, but I'm saying people like you. Ours is an age of great scientific and technological development. And yet for all of that, we are still asking the most fundamental questions of humanity. And I was trying to figure out a person who could encapsulate this in a way that would make sense. And I went back, and all of a sudden, the Lord kind of dropped it on my heart. You know what? We need to dive back into Marvel. All right? The person who encapsulates a previous generation who believed that technology could do everything is one Howard Stark. All right? All my Marvel people are going, yeah, we talk in, we talk in Howard Stark. All right, Howard Stark, the great inventor, the one who solved World War II in the Marvel Universe, the one who understood how technology could fix anything, he says this in the movies. He says, everything is achievable through technology. Better living, robust health, and for the first time in human history, the possibility of world peace. Technology holds infinite possibilities for mankind and will one day rid society of all its ills. As an aside, that's a heck of a theological statement says, soon technology will affect the way you live your life every day. No more tedious work, leaving more time for leisure activities and enjoying the sweet life. Howard Stark is representative of a technological generation that things were put in place generations ago that are coming to full fruition now. Howard Stark and generations previous have been formed by war. Because what moves technology forward faster? It's always war. And so Stark in the Marvel Universe is looking at the Nazis and trying to figure out how to beat the Nazis. And we're all like, yeah, if there's one thing we can agree on, let's beat the Nazis. But he believes that technology and the war that produces it all can create happiness. And if you needed evidence, there was a sense in which, you know what can bring peace? A nuclear bomb. And so he believes that tech can create happiness. Tech is knowledge, tech is justice, tech is compassion, tech is progress, and technology is purpose. And Howard Stark lived this, and our generations have lived this, and they made a fortune on this, and they have moved it forward, but Tony Stark, his son, bore the scars of that theology. Tony Stark, the one who had it all, except his very own life. 
His son bore the scars of that. And if you know the Marvel movies, you know Tony Stark is a mess, which is why he's such a compelling character. Because I look at Tony and be like, I ain't a multi-billionaire, but that rings true to me. Tony Stark had to bear his father's theology in his body. He was living the luxury of modernity, but was completely unhappy. And he's not the only one. Ricky Schlott, who is a Gen Z journalist and activist, wrote this about her own generation. It was done in a study about how Gen Z feels about their own generation and how they're doing. She writes this. She says, Gen Z has inherited a post-hope world. I I need you to hear that. Gen Z has inherited a post-hope world, stripped of what matters. Instead, we have been offered a smorgasbord of easy and unsatisfying substitutes. Everything that matters has been devalued for Zoomers, leaving behind a generation with gaping holes where the foundations of a meaningful life should be. This is not, quote unquote, the older generations looking back and saying how terrible the young kids are. This is our kids saying this about themselves. And all of them now live on, metaphorically, this high-speed high interstate. They are just constantly bombarded, constantly running their motors at 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 RPMs at every moment of the day, and they are never allowed to take their foot off the gas. And when you run an engine like that, when you're bearing those burdens like that, well, you know what happens eventually. And the reports are all out there. I'm not going to quote you stats because you can look these up for themselves. But what we see in this generation is so immersed in all of this is isolation, anxiety, disillusionment, and hopelessness. And they have almost no exit ramps. Where are you supposed to get off on this? Where are you supposed to stop and just retreat from this? Because when they feel the tug of something more, when they feel their hearts heavy, when they need to go somewhere, what, what, our, what technology has said is just hand your needs over to the algorithms. And Ricky Schlott puts it bluntly when she says, laugh, seethe, cry, repeat. No one's happy. And we're all Tony Stark. A pastor once said, Being angry with modern people for losing their faith is like being angry with medieval people for dying of the plague. It's not their fault. Compassion is in order for the challenges that our young people have to endure and commitment to offering them a different way entirely. How can a young man keep his way pure in this kind of society? In the society that we've built. They didn't build it. And how are they supposed to live with this? How can a young man keep his way pure? Well, now it's almost a hopeless cry, right? Like, what are we supposed to do? What are you asking of us? Slow down. It still points back to happiness. Happy are those who walk in the way of the Lord. We're not done with happiness yet. And that is my promise to the young people who always sit right in front of me every Sunday. We are not done with happiness. Happiness is still there if we seek it. If modern life is this interstate highway that never quits, there are exits off of this highway. There are other paths. 
We can't get off of real life. Like, no, sorry, your phone is going to be attached to you for the rest of your life. There's not much I can do about that. But there are other ways of seeing reality. What is real is not always what's on your screen. And God is still living and active in our lives. God is still sending us information. God is still communicating with us. God is still calling us to himself. God is still sending us reality that isn't of this world, but it is of heaven, of a different reality entirely. And we can participate in that, but we have to walk in a different way. You can't do it on the highway. There are things that are real that our senses and our algorithms cannot discern. And it takes a life of faith to discern them. And, it has to, and that life of faith happens not in the head, it happens in the heart. How can a young lad make his path worthy? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Do not let me stray. I treasure your word in my heart that I might not sin, that I might not stray, that I might not go away. I delight in the way of your decrees. Delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. The path that we are given is a conviction of the heart combined with a way of being in the world. A principled life of integrity alongside a light heart and a stout conviction and the psalmist and our children and all of us are pleading for this is there any chance this is true and the answer is absolutely but it's not in do this and don't do that because as Christians we take Psalm 119 this talk about the law and we need to shift it a little bit it needs to go somewhere else and what we believe what Christians have always confessed is that in the fullness of time, this word, this law, this logic of God became flesh and dwelt among us. All of a sudden, the law isn't in words. The law is in a person. We named him Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And we could love him. We can't love words, but we can love a person. And we could follow him because we could see what a life of purpose and conviction and happiness a life completely dedicated to God in this person we could see it where we couldn't see it in ourselves and Psalm 119 guarding it according to your with my whole heart I seek you do not let me stray Psalm 119 played out in the life of a particular person and it plays out in a particular story this story you know well Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. Jesus does this all the time. It's a good lesson for us, but that's a different sermon. He sends the guys on across the sea. Well, and if you know anything about the Middle East, you know that that sea, the winds are a little whippy, what we say in our household. And sure enough, the boys are stuck in a boat on a sea that is churning. And the Sea of Galilee is not kind and it is not forgiving. And so Jesus is like, oh, I missed my ride. Well, I'm just going to scoot on across the water. Again, you know this. Jesus walks on the water. And, they're there, and they are terrified. They're like, wait, it's a ghost. And Jesus is like, y'all, y'all guys, take heart in his eye. Do not be afraid. This storm is churning and they're afraid they're going to be chilled and Jesus, killed. And Jesus is going, guys, I got this. Take heart. Do not be afraid. It is I. And Peter opens his big mouth. Love Petey. 
Because Peter says, if it's you, call me to come walking out on the water. And he's like, come on, let's go. So he steps out. You can imagine this moment. You've put yourself there, right? And you can imagine the first step. The second step would seem to be easy. It's that first step. Like, is this going to hold? And it does. The word of God, Jesus says, come, and he follows, and that ground was solid. Until. Until he stopped fixing his eyes on Jesus and started fixing his eyes on the storm. And as soon as he started looking at the storm more than he was looking at his Savior, that's when he started to sink. When he focused on Christ, he walked. And when he lost that focus, he sank. And Jesus rescues him. Because Jesus always rescues, right? Jesus rescues him and says, you of little faith, which is not sort of criticizing him. He's like, like bro, did I, what are you doing? Did I not tell you to come after me? Friends, Gen Z is being called to walk on maybe the choppiest waters ever. The storm is around them from the moment they get up to the moment they go to sleep. And the storm is around us in so many ways too. They have experienced it every moment of their lives. The rest of us are kind of being sucked up into it. They're the experts in how to do this, not us. But they walk on some really choppy waters, y'all. But those choppy waters... Christ is yet calling him to walk lives of light heart and stout conviction. Yes, they're feeling isolation, but that creates a hunger for belonging that can be found in Jesus Christ. Yes, they have disillusionment with hypocritical leaders and hypocritical institutions, but it creates a hunger in them for authentic, humble leadership who will walk alongside of them and show them a different way entirely. Yes, they battle with anxiety, but that is creating a hunger in them for deep peace, which can be found in the cross of Christ. There are, in so many ways, they're struck, and they see constantly this digital self-projection, giving out to the world what we want the world to be, not authentically who we are, but that's creating a longing for real-life, non-judgmental sincerity, where we can just be one another and just say, hey, this is who I am. They no longer have places, this isolation. Loss of places of belonging creates a hunger for healthy institutions where they can find mentors and partners to walk with them step by step in the daily and the regular and sometimes even the boring. And they see images of violence daily, day after day after day, but that, those images of violence are creating in them a longing for acceptance and diversity and nonviolence. There has to be a better way. And so 1 John puts to the church in the same words of Psalm 119, everyone who has this hope, everyone who thinks Jesus is worth following, purifies themselves or devotes themselves as Christ is pure. Not as Christ is perfect, but as Christ is resolute, as Christ is steadfast. We are called to that same resolution, that same steadfastness. And St. Mary's, that is what we are called to do when we bring on Ashley and we have a confirmation class and we have a Sunday school class and we have a youth group and we say we want something wonderful for them. We want them to walk with a lightness of heart and stout conviction. And so we have got to devote ourselves to following after Christ so that they can. So that's what we'll set out to do. In Sunday school, we'll keep teaching our kids to learn that they are loved, that God cares about them, no matter what. In confirmation, they'll learn that Jesus' love touches us personally and calls us to a different way of life. 
in youth and young adulthood will learn that it's all about learning to live, learning the pathways, and coming alongside companions who will show us the way. And we have to teach that to follow Christ, not just have good morals. They don't need us for morals. They need us for relationship. They need us for an example of faith. They need us for love. They need us for a way of life, a way of thinking about their life in the world that runs right through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. A life of faith that responds to Christ's presence and makes a difference in the world. And so this is the charge. Church, this is our charge. For better or for worse, Ashley, this is your charge. Parents, this is your charge. Grandparents, this is your charge. Sunday school teachers, it's your charge. VBS helpers, it's your charge. But let's not ask our children to go to a place that we are not willing to go. Because our kids won't get out of the boat if we're all terrified, if we're all absorbed by that same highway. So yes, we hired someone. Yes, we love our kids. Yes, we have a youth group. Now the work begins, St. Mary's. We invite each of us to step out of that boat into the storm. So many of us are already out there. Not to look at the storm. The storm is there. You don't need a reminder of that. But to fix our eyes on Jesus. And in that, find the lightness of heart and the stoutness of conviction that God intends for each and every one of us. Amen.